Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti and this is Yoga Land. Hi, Jason. Hi, Andrea. How are you? I'm pretty good. How about you? You got back from just teaching in LA recently. I did. Live and in person. It was amazing. Was and it nice? Shout out. I forget her name, um, but someone flew in on the red eye and flew out the next night on the red eye in order to come from the East Coast. She gets a uh, she gets like the, the a student, double gold star. She gets the student of the year award. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yes. Chelsea. You're, you're you're done with that. I'm joking. Chelsea got what? Chelsea's still the hero of this whole thing. This whole organization. Yeah. <laughs> she is. She got a special mug for me last year. Um, you have another live longer thing coming up this summer, which is your hybrid training. Uh, and that's happening in London. It is. And I think the thing for people to know that's cool about this training is just that it's like, is it five or six days in person? It's six days in person. And, and then the 50 rest hours of online. online. So if you just want to do like an intensive with Jason in person, this is your chance. And then you've got all this time to, to do the online at your, at your leisure. Exactly. And we're also going to be announcing the, some weekend workshops for that same trip very shortly. Okay. So that, I'm super excited about those. So that, that'll be in July and we'll announce those soon. Yeah. And if you want to do, if, if you're out there and you're thinking like, I might want to do a training, what's a hybrid training? How does it work? Jason's doing a webinar um, on Thursday, May 18th at 10 a.m. Pacific. And if you'd like to sign up for that, it's free. It's just a walkthrough of the course. It's go to jasonyoga.com slash webinar. And of course, if you register, we'll send you a replay if you can't make it live. Yep. Yeah. And if you hear this after that date, there'll be um, there'll be other opportunities shortly for that same webinar. Yeah. Just yeah. to get a sense of what the program is all about. Totally. Yeah. And having just released the online anatomy course, my mind is still on anatomy. So the last time that we spoke, we talk, we talked really about what I saw as these like five really fundamental concepts for working skillfully with your hips in yoga. And I wanted to do the same thing for spine, which we're going to do today. And then shortly, we'll also do core and shoulders. So like a little concept-based series that I think is going to help both teachers and practitioners make sure they're thinking about the regions of their body in a, just a skillful, intelligent, and comprehensive way. Yeah. When I look at today's topic, I we'll see how I, how, what kind of, um, title I come up with. That's always kind of the end packaging, but the way I see the content you're about to talk about is kind of 10 things you might not typically think about when you think about the spine. Five things. Sorry. 10, ten things. things. just seems like a little long <laughs> for us. Oh for my us. gosh. It would I mean, be an eternity. I could go on and on and on. Yes, you give you me could. more time and I'll still go over <laughs> Yeah, if class is 30 minutes, I'll go a minute over. If class is 60 minutes, I'll go a minute over. If it's a four-hour class, I'll go a minute over. A minute? <laughs> well, I was, I, I'm was. i practicing self-kindness. Um, five things. Okay. All right. So let, let's, let's jump in. Yeah. And I'll say that these are like, for me, these are really the like five macro focal points or teaching points or concepts that if we understand... I think we're going to save ourselves and our students a lot of a 
lot of suffering, and we're gonna we're gonna have a little bit more skill.、Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first real concept I want us to work with is to understand that our spine is a mobile stress distributing structure. Okay. So that's the main point I want to make. The spine is mobile, and it is also a stress distributing structure. I'll talk about that in a moment. And so what this means for us practically. Is we need to honor this reality that the spine actually does not prefer to have concentrated stressors, and so when we are stressing the back in a yoga pose, whether it's a forward bend, a side bend, a twist, a back bend, when we're applying demand to the back, we want to distribute the stresses, not concentrate the stresses. And I'm going to give us just a really quick example of this. I don't care how far someone goes or how maybe picture perfect someone looks in a backbend. If the vast majority of the sensation that that person experiences is only in the lower back, it's actually not a very good backbend,、mm-hmm. right? Because it's not well distributed. So when we take time to learn a little bit more about the anatomy of the spine, we see that there are that there are many different layers. And many different mechanisms and structures within the spine itself to offload the stress of gravity, the stress of ground reaction force, and the stress of air pressure. So the spine, as it's evolved, because it's long and relatively narrow, there's a certain structural vulnerability to it, and so the spine has essentially evolved so that that. So that its length and narrowness avoids vulnerability by offloading pressure and stress. So when we do a yoga practice, we really want to think about in any given pose. We really want to think about our capacity to feel the whole length of our spine. So in a forward bend, do you feel the feeling in your back well distributed? In a back bend, do you feel the lower back, the middle back, and the upper back? In a side bend, you feel the lower back, the middle back, the upper back, and I would encourage everyone to make micro shifts in every pose where their spine is affected, in order to deconcentrate sensation. So if you're kind of feeling like, oh, I really feel this in a spot, instead of oh, I feel this nicely distributed across a larger surface area, make those small little shifts until you have a Kind of a a whole body or a whole spine feeling of the pose, where everything is awake and everything has sensation, but no one thing feels overtaxed or overloaded.、Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's I it's safe to say, right, that people might naturally bend more in the neck or in the lower back. When they're in going the into thoracic spine, yeah, let's say in the、yeah. back in a、sure. back bend, just because of the structure of the spine. So those would be two places to kind of focus in on and make sure that you know you are distributing the 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 bend a little bit more evenly. Yeah, and I think what you really have to focus on, and this is this is not easy. This is this takes a lot of practice and and understanding. But I can tell you that from the outside. It's actually very difficult for me to see your inner sensory experience of the pose, right? So let's take a back bend for example. When you do any given back bend, your lower back and your neck are more mobile in that direction. 
So the reality is that the lumbar spine and the cervical spine in a backbend are probably going to move more than the thoracic spine. Yep. So they're, they're actually going to have more um, degrees of movement. It doesn't matter to me that they have more degrees of movement. What starts to matter to me is what does it feel like in your body? Does it feel overloaded or does it feel underloaded? So if you in your backbend, if from the outside it looks to me like your lower back is going more than your thoracic spine, well, that's the nature of the spine and how it moves. That's okay. The problem starts to be in your body if you are feeling, oh, this is this is mostly my lower back and it's all and it's not my thoracic spine, it's not my cervical spine. All I can feel is this one spot. Or another really simple way to think about it, everybody, and we'll stay on the backbend topic. If you want to get out of the pose because one part of your back is uncomfortable, that pose is not that structurally sound, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And and I think the last point I want to make on this particular topic, I think from a certain perspective, what I'm saying right now is obvious, but I think it takes a long time to get to this place. And the reason being is we tend to do more of the same. And we tend to think that, oh, well, you know, I'm in this bridge pose and these are the parts of my body that are moving. So I want to go a little bit further. So I want the places that are already moving to go further. I'm just going to apply a little bit more effort because I want more shape in the pose. I want more range in the pose instead of thinking to ourselves, oh, I don't need to apply more stress. I need to make little micro movements throughout my body so that the so that there's not necessarily more movements, but there's more distribution of sensation from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's also just, um, it's a nice point of concentration as well, right? Yeah. To, to distribute the attention. I mean, we are, we are deep down looking for a sensory experience of equanimity. Right. This practice is, is in so many ways more described by the, unified experience of equilibrium and the unified feeling of evenness or sama or equanimity much more so than how far can we get one thing that already moves in this direction to continue to move. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Yes. So the second point is it's kind of similar, but different and requires just a tiny bit of context. Okay. So I'll just kind of lay the point out and then I'll talk it out. So point number two, Combining spinal movements while applying leverage to those movements is risky, okay? So let me start by saying this. The spine does many different movements and the spine is able to combine those movements. So we don't move like a robot, okay? So the spine rounds forward, it rounds backwards, it turns and it bends to the side and it lengthens and and kind of shortens, okay? And it can make combined movements. So in normal human life, right? Like my coffee is a little right now forward and to the right. So for me to reach my coffee, I kind of have to turn my spine to the right and round a little bit forward to get it. My spine is perfectly capable of rotating and flexing simultaneously. When you look over your shoulder while you're driving or you go to put your seatbelt on, you probably rotate 
and slightly extend the spine. Like you do a tiny bit of a twist and a tiny bit of a backbend. When you put your shoes on, same goes. There's flexion and there's rotation. So I don't want people to think in our lives and in our yoga practice, we can't combine spinal movements. But when we are combining spinal movements and we are adding leverage or we're trying to go further in those spinal movements, that is risky. And of course, of course, we there's a certain amount of risk to anything we do and there's greater risk to not doing. If I'm in a back bend or a forward bend or a twist and I add too much leverage, well, that's also risky. But if I'm in a spinally combined movement and I'm adding leverage, that's uniquely as uniquely risky. And I'm okay. gonna give some examples. Right. Yeah, so why don't you give an example? Yeah. Okay. So let's say I wanna do Marichyasana three. I and everybody hear me, I'm not saying Marichyasana three is dangerous, but it, it's a good example. So if I am going to stay upright, and so my one leg straight, one knee's bent, I take the one elbow, hook it to the outside, and it's a simple twist. If I'm staying really upright, and I'm just using a little bit of elbow to knee connection to rotate my spine, that's probably reasonable. But let's say I decide to bind. And let's say that I have a long spine and kind of shorter thighs. Well, what am I going to need to do to bind? I'm going to have to round my spine a little forward. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be twisting towards the bent leg, but I'm not going to be really lifted and lengthened and upright or else my arm is not going to get around it's my It's kind of like my body type. Yeah, it's yeah. too high. So in order to, to wrap the arm around the, the leg, I have to round forward. So now what have I done? I've rotated the spine, but I've also forward flexed the spine. And now what am I doing? I'm adding leverage because I'm, I'm making that arm to leg connection, right? I'm gonna give you another example and then we'll talk about why this is particularly risky, okay? Classic mermaid pose, right? Mermaid pose. Again, I am not saying it's a dangerous pose. I'm not saying these are dangerous poses, but we have to think through this concept. So if you're doing old school pigeon pose as a backbend, Ekapada Raja Kapatasana, okay? You have an asymmetrical position to the hips, but you have a symmetrical position to the spine because you're facing forward and you're reaching one arm down and back to catch the foot, or you're reaching both arms overhead to hold the foot directly or via a belt. But there's not a twist in that pose, right? right? Mm -hmm. It's a deep asymmetrical backbend, but where is the asymmetry? The asymmetry is just in the hip joints. It's not in the spine. But if I'm doing mermaid pose, now I'm doing a deep asymmetrical for the spine backbend because I'm rotating to the I'm rotating to the side where that back leg is connected. So I can reach my one arm back and then and then make that kind of like partial bind. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So in that pose, it's a backbend and a twist and arguably a side bend. Mm -hmm. Now all of those things are normal human things. But if I make that reach and I'm kind of I'm kind of grabbing and pulling, yeah. Well, now it's a leveraged combined spinal movement. Yep. And the reason that the reason that this is another level of risk is it goes back to the first point, which is the spine is a stress distributing structure. It has evolved to deconcentrate forces on it. 
So if you are adding rotation and flexion or rotation and extension, when you're making these combined movements and working for it, you are highly concentrating the stress into a place. And that carries a much greater risk often to the sacroiliac joint and often to the lumbar spine than a more than a than a movement that is more singular in its direction or totally unleveraged and unloaded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say it's it's like a the idea of <clears throat> cranking yourself into mermaid is is ripe for being a sacrum cruncher. Oh man, it, it is. <laughs> and again, it's really important we acknowledge. I'm not saying any given pose is dangerous. Well, and there's certain bodies for whom it just probably feels lovely and it works really well. And then there are certain bodies like mine where it really depends on the day and what I've been doing beforehand and how everything is just kind of fluidly moving or not. That's why I wanted to use the word risky. I mean, I participate in risky physical things. It's okay. Yes, like we, you do. Right? We, <laughs> we, 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 we're allowed We're allowed to take on risk. Totally. What I think is not sensible is taking on risk without the acknowledgement that we're taking on risk and without kind of the knowledge that we're taking on certain risks so that we might know, man, today is not a day for a, a deeper mermaid. asymmetrical yeah. shape mm-hmm. pose. Yep. Right? Okay. Now, the next one is really straightforward, okay? Which is the spine does not twist from the bottom up. It twists essentially from the top down, okay? So let's, now let's, I'll kind of walk this back. Your lumbar spine, my lumbar spine, everyone's lumbar spine is strongly structurally inhibited from rotation, The lumbar spine, the lower back does not rotate. The thoracic spine rotates and the cervical spine rotates. And I I, like when we're in person and I'm, I'm teaching this thing, I always like turn my back to people and give them an example. Like, okay, everybody like call my name. And then like someone will say Jason and I'll jokingly like lift up from the bottom and then turn the chest and turn my head. Right. And that's, that's actually not how a human would ever do this movement. Right. A human is always going to turn the head first. It's all, we actually rotate from the top, from the top down. Okay. Now I'm not suggesting that you just whip your head around in space, but in a lot of ways, and I've said this in so many other contexts, sometimes, and I'll be the first person to acknowledge that I do it. We overcorrect. And so we, we, we start to worry like, oh, I know the neck turns a lot and I know the thoracic spine can turn and I don't want my students to overdo it. So we kind of overcorrect by telling them not to do like the normal human thing that people would actually do in this circumstance, right? Mm-hmm. But I think, I think the, the sweet spot where we can land in this conversation is what we can really understand if you still if we if we are still in some way wedded to the idea of quote unquote twisting from the bottom or you know twisting from the ground up think about the lower back lifting and then the thoracic spine turning so instead of rotating from the lower back or twisting from the lower back you are lifting from the lower back you're actually turning from the chest. You're mm-hmm. really turning from the chest or 
more of the rib cage. Right. So, so it's a really easy thing to just be like, lift the lower back, turn your chest. Do you think when teachers are cueing turn from the lower back, they're trying to just explain that it's okay to move the pelvis in the twist? Definitely not. Oh, okay. No. Okay. Okay. Got um, it. It is okay to turn the pelvis. Right, the totally. Yeah, but that's and not so maybe you're... that I was just going to say that might be if it, that was the aim, then that would be a more accurate cue. No, I think I think the aim, if I can speak for myself, giving this cue, which is like not an accurate cue for a decade, I was just wrong. I oh, just didn't I, understand I, the I, anatomy. Yeah, okay. and it's and it's extremely common, right? Because we kind of. I think that we just get a little bit mixed up in our head that you can totally think about twisting from the bottom up, but it's actually lifting from the bottom up, turning from the middle. And I think that it's just a very common thing. Like I didn't know for a very long time about the lumbar facet joints and their inhibition for rotation. But but one of the reasons this is this really matters, and this is so obvious in hindsight in our yoga life. But when you put stress, when you're trying to move a part of the body and it isn't moving, that's the place in which you can really start to irritate the joint structure. So if I'm, if I'm trying to turn from the lower back and I'm applying leverage to a region of the body that can't move, to dissipate and absorb the stress of that leverage, stuff is running into stuff. Totally. Right. And yeah. that creates a lot. And, and I actually think that I wreaked havoc on my lower back for a long time. Not even because I was a knucklehead and trying to go too far, but I was literally trying to turn too low. Yeah. So it's more of a lift from the bottom up. Right. Turn from the chest. Right. Turn from the ribs. Turn from the shoulders. So let's talk about, um, I think this is the next one. I'm going to skip to it if it's not. When people do wreak havoc on their backs, especially mm-hmm. their lower backs, there's there's really a tendency, and I think this is changing, but uh, to be afraid of using the back and really afraid of strengthening the back and feeling Big any time. muscular soreness after doing anything. If you came to my class... And we focused a ton on leg work. And the next day your quads and your hips and your hamstrings were sore. You'd be like, oh man, that was a good class. Right. If we focused on, if you went to like ab blaster 2000 class and you know, for the next 30 days, you could barely get out of bed because you worked your abs so much. You might think like I overdid it, but there wasn't something wrong with this. If you went to my class and we focused on strengthening the back and the next day your back and neck were sore, you'd be like, "Uh uh-oh, there's a problem. I did it wrong. Yeah. So we have, we have just to kind of start off with, we have a very, um, I would say on, let me, let me speak for myself for a very long period of my life. I had a very unnuanced understanding of delayed onset muscle soreness. And I thought that sensation in my back was a problem. Right. I think people, it's hard for people to discern. It's really hard. It really makes them so nervous and anxious when there's any 
sensation or soreness in the back. Right. So, and you, you led into this perfectly, right? Because, so like I said, even without the history of lower back pain, even without injuries, we just tend to think that if we did something and the neck is sore or the lower back is sore, even if it's from skillfully using those muscles to the point of fatigue, and now they have delayed onset muscle soreness, we think there's a problem. Mm -hmm. But if you have any history of lower back pain, lower back injury, for me, multiple disc interruptions, spondylolisthesis, spasm, man, I didn't want anything to do with increasing the sensation of right. my lower back. Totally right? makes sense. And that lack of discernment, I'm not, I don't say that in a in like a judgmental way towards myself, but that lack of discernment really held me back for a long time because I didn't understand that my back was not simply tight. It was not simply in pain. It was weak. And part of the reason that it was tight and part of the reason it was in chronic pain was because it was so weak. Hmm. And so kind of the point here is this, that, that on this, this line is that tight lower back of yours, chances are it's actually probably weak too. And, and we gave this example in the hips conversation about the hip flexors, right? Is that, or not even just about the hip flexors, but many of the hip muscles, right? Which is very oftentimes we have tight hips, but oftentimes those tight hips are also weak hips. And how do we know? Well, it's not necessarily easy to know, but one of the things you can do is think about what in your life you're doing with your hips and legs. And if you have stiff hips as a function of sitting a lot and working a lot and having kind of like a modern lifestyle a lot, your hips are probably weak. They might be also tight, but they're also probably weak. If you have tight hips and you know you're doing crossfit and you're swimming and you're running 30 miles a you run day run stairs every day right like four then times your hips are probably not weak they're probably just they're probably just tight mm-hmm. you know so you you kind of have to make that um that that basic um behaviors of life like what am i doing in in my life right now mm-hmm. um that may be contributing to this and and is there something i can point to that's making them stiff that's probably easy but c- can you point to anything that's making them also strong and if the answer is no they're weak and i would say the exact same thing for the lower back the lower back is woefully and chronically in modern culture weak it is would you say the same for the weak. upper back? I mean, because I would say the whole yeah. posterior spine is woefully weak. Yeah, yeah. In part because we we okay. I think there's a lot of reasons for it, but if you just think about the body in a in a modern setting, and I know you know most of our listeners, yoga practitioners, teachers, and so forth, but let's say that I spend ten hours per week doing some sort of active exercise, right? That's about what it is for me. Well, there's still um, like, I'm not going to do the math, but there's way more hours where I don't. And the majority of those hours I'm sitting rounded a little bit forward. Mm -hmm. And so the constant sitting and rounded forward in the same way, and this was something I was very sensitized to in yoga, in the same way that sitting shortens the front side, So it shortens the hip flexors, it shortens pecs, it kind of rounds the shoulders forward. 
And so we think to ourselves, oh, well, I want to stretch that out and open it up. And the answer is totally. But in the same way that your front body is getting shortened and kind of tightened, your back body is getting lengthened and kind of weakened, mm-hmm. right? It's it's slack. getting, yeah, it's getting mm-hmm. slack. It's getting tense and slack. Like mm-hmm. it's, it, it, and the other thing that I would say about this is just as a function of age, the the older we are, the quicker we um, not only muscles atrophy, but we just get deconditioned. Like our body just gets deconditioned. And so that back body just slowly but surely is getting weak, mm-hmm. right? So what are a couple of things we can do about it? Okay, everyone that has graduated from my 300-hour program knows the answer to this. Locust, Locust pose, pose, right? So, but but things like that. Yeah, lots right? of variations. So, and- so, so face down back bends, and and a lot of a lot more face down back bends where you're using the spinal muscles to create the motion instead of the arms and legs. So, think about cobra for a moment. If I'm in cobra pose and my hands are pushing down, which is how typically we'll do cobra pose, the spinal muscles are not. They might be working a little bit, but not much because what's generating the spinal arc in that example, my hands pressing down are generating the spinal arc. I'm using the engine of the legs. And you'll see so many backbends are like this or bow pose or so many where it's the arms and the legs pressing against the ground or each other that produces the action of the spine moving into a backbend. So we want to make sure that, and these are good poses, don't get me wrong, but in terms of addressing this weakness, those things are not going to address the weakness. Bridge pose is not going to address the weakness of the spine. It's just not. Up dog is not going to address the spinal weakness. It's not. More locust pose and locust pose variations, right? There's some other things that we can do. And like anything else, you know, if you have time and inclination, you can supplement this with basic resistance training or swimming or you know, some other things, but I, th- I think at very least for our listeners to kind of think to themselves, oh, maybe that lower back, maybe I do need to stretch it out. Maybe I do need to release that tension. Maybe I do need to breathe deeper, 100%, but also maybe the glutes need to be strengthened and those spinal muscles need to be strengthened. Well, I kind of love your that you have put locust into exalted status because the truth of the matter is locust is not the prettiest pose, regardless of how great you are at backbending. It's not a physically satisfying pose because you just feel like a worm. And, but when you know, when you, when you study with Jason Crandall and you know how much good you're doing for your body and for your practice and that you're going to feel better, it, I just do it now. It's not a problem for me. I'm not like, oh, I hate this pose because I can't get up very far. It's like, that's not the point. The point is just to strengthen what I need to strengthen. It's a tough sell to work hard and not go far in yoga. Right. And and that's the nature of that beast. But you know who used to go really far in that pose? Who? Um, he was the, the he was in San Francisco forever. A really nice James. Oh my god, I love that you remember someone's Higgins. locust pose. And the, oh James yeah, he did Higgins. have a gorgeous locust pose. I mean, he it's could true. do anything, right? He probably still right, does. and yeah. just like always look good. Yeah, uh, but he he I, what I remember is he modeled that pose 
in the early 2000s okay. in, um, in Yoga Journal. Yeah. And I remember seeing it and being like, damn. Love James. Yeah. Hi, James, if you're out there listening. Um, final okay. one. Final one. Don't forget to round your back when the time is right. So this, this okay, this is something I think about all the time. And it, it to me, it goes a little bit back to the overcorrection issue. Okay. So I think that there are a lot of things that we are, as yoga teachers, uninclined towards because our students are probably already doing too much of that thing unconsciously in day to day life. Mm -hmm. So something like protracting the shoulder blades, like broadening the shoulder blades, rounding the back, tucking the tailbone, like these are all things that if you're thinking about the yoga practice, as a counterbalance to how people are living their physical life, you're like, I don't want to do those things because they've been doing those things too much. And part of the answer is yes, that is correct. More locust pose. So you, so, so as a yoga teacher, yes, you want to help round out the, the kind of like the physical downsides of a modern culture. At the same time, just because someone does too much of something unconsciously when it's the wrong time for it doesn't mean there isn't a right time for it, mm-hmm. right? And I think this is something like I just genuinely did not understand for a very long period of time that one of the very important things that the spine does is flexes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really important for it to round. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I'm too rounded too much of the day doesn't mean that when the time is right, I shouldn't also round it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that a lot of times this, this plays out in forward folds mm-hmm. and a lot of times in forward folds, people are trying to get straighter and straighter and flatter and flatter in their spine. And you have people in Janu Shashasana or Pachimottanasana or any forward bend you have people whose torso are all the way against their legs right. and they're tr- still trying to straighten more. That was me for a long time. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that this that's does- That's how I ended up with my hamstring attachment. Hamstring attachment injuries. injury, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's the first main point I want to say, which is like, if you are a really deep forward bender, just stop trying to go so far. You're already there. Like that box is ticked, Okay. So if you are already like in a deep forward bend and your torso's against your legs and so forth, there are things you can do, but you've probably already maxed out your hip flexion in that pose. Don't, well, don't keep comes, fighting for it. It, it's, it tends to, I don't necessarily think people are aware that they're fighting for it. I think it comes from being cued over and over again to lift the sitting, lift and spread the sitting bones in a forward bend, which works well for most of the class, but for someone in my situation, I was over lifting and spreading the sitting bones and then pulling further and further and further instead of just drawing the sitting bones together just a little toward each other, just a little bit makes me back off of that. Yeah. So I also think this is a scenario where sometimes as a yoga teacher, we are, we are teaching to the one person in the room 
without directly teaching to that one person in the room. So I'm going to give you an example, and I will make me the teacher and me the student, right? There's good Lord in the situation. There are two of me. So let's say there's a public class and there's 15 people and the yoga teacher sees in a forward bend that the one person in the back of the room, which happens to be me in this situation, can barely do a forward bend. And they're just, they're struggling and they're rounding their back too much. Likely that yoga teacher is going to start to tell the whole class, you know, don't let your back round, don't round your back, get a little bit straighter, straighter with the spine, straighter with the spine. So I'm teaching to the anomaly, right? I'm teaching to me, the, the person that is struggling with the thing. But everyone else in that class, let's say they're not struggling with that thing. And so they're applying the wrong information for their body, Mm -hmm. right? They're trying to go further and further and further and pull on their hamstrings and make their spine rigid. And I think this is just a scenario where we have to have just a little bit more of a technical understanding of something, okay? So I want everyone to envision just child's pose right? Just envision child's pose, like your average child's pose. And ask yourself, is the spine straight? And the answer is no. In the vast majority of child's poses, the spine's not straight, unless you separate the knees really wide and so forth. But let's say your knees are close together and you're doing child's pose and your spine is rounded, right? In this scenario, is the spine straight? No. Do you think it's dangerous because your spine is not straight? And the answer is no. Like, not if you're a sensible listener, no. Do you think that somehow the pose would be better if you straightened your spine in child's pose? And the answer is no. Because number one, that actually by by making the spine straighter in that situation, you're taking away the surrender, you're taking away the softness. You're taking away the quietness. And you're also taking away a prime healthy scenario where you actually want to flex the spine. You want it to move into that range of motion. So it's it, this is kind of a, a lot easier if we're all in the same room to talk through. But I, I will leave everyone with this. How much do we want to round the spine when the time is right in a forward bend? about child's pose amount. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's not like a gratuitous amount, but like mm-hmm. about a child's pose amount, mm-hmm. right? And that doesn't mean that if someone is really tight and someone is over rounding the spine, that they shouldn't come out and be a little straighter, right? So we we don't want to be overly indulgent in the rounding, especially with a tighter, stiffer body. But... Th- but we don't want to we don't want to lack the nuance in this situation and therefore just tell everyone in all situations to make their back flat right in a forward bend because it is not flat you don't want a flat back right. in a forward bend any more than you want a flat back in a back bend yeah. or a straight spine in a twist right i mean just like if everyone just kind of like parts on that and right. kind of thinks to themselves well I'm not asking my spine to be straight and flat in a backbend <laughs> because that's not a backbend. It's the same thing with a forward bend. And so what do we do? We go back, we conclude with number one, with that first statement, right? Focus on distributing the sensation. And so if in the rounding of the back, the pose feels all like 
junky and problematic, then you've probably gone too far. But if you're fighting to be flatter, then you, you're, you're probably not allowing for your spine to move into a, like a natural healthy position when the time is right for it. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is when I started to actually let my back spine round a little bit at the end of a forward bend, like I would come into the forward bend and then just kind of back off a little bit because I was so used to over, you know, overdoing it. Um, getting my thighs like all the way or getting my chest all the way to my thighs, let's say in standing forward bend. So kind of get my pelvis in the right place, then, then back off instead of pulling in. I could actually feel what the pose is supposed to do, mm. which is to stretch my back. I could actually feel tightness in my back that totally. I never felt before. It was like, oh, that's why I'm doing this pose, not to get my chest and my thighs, but to lengthen the back of my body. As in observation, many students with very flexible hamstrings have tight spines in flexion. Yeah, because all of that hinge that they do is from the hip joint. Mm-hmm. And, and also a lot of times students with really flexible hamstrings, just I think there's a certain amount of self-fulfilling prophecy that sometimes we're just, we're, we're drawn into environments that our body excels in or lends itself to. And I think that sometimes a, m- more flexible students will t- are often drawn to disciplines that emphasize forward bends with flat backs mm-hmm. because it's so doable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But distribute the stress, let that spine actually round. And FYI, the stronger you've made that back body, the, m- the more you will enjoy spinal flexion because it'll feel like a nice appropriate stretch when the time is right. Mm-hmm. But also the stronger it is, the more resilient mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Just like a stronger piece of elastic can apply, can absorb greater stress than a weaker, what I say, elastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If I have this really flimsy elastic, if I have this like really flimsy material, it's not robust enough to absorb the stresses. And so I have to be that much more conservative. Right. But the, but the stronger the material, the more robust the material, the more it can tolerate stress in different directions, yep. which, is why, which is why strengthening the weak parts is not only so valuable, but strengthening the weak parts also tends to make the weak parts more flexible. Right. Yep. Totally. Well, I love all of these nuances of the spine and I'm looking forward to the next one that we do. You said we're going to do the core. We'll do core next. Core. Okay. It's it's super related to this. I had to fight really hard not to add core things right. to this list of five spine things. Cool. Yep. All right. Well, thanks, Jason. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I will put some sequences that Jason has created um, that will move your spine in all the directions on the show notes page. And you can find that at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 296. And again, if you want to join us for that webinar or learn more about the hybrid program, you go to jasonyoga.com slash webinar. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Until next week, enjoy your practice. 